This is an ABC podcast. Brianna Brock comes from a loud, bossy, sports-mad family. Growing up, she and her two sisters were encouraged to try anything, especially when it came to sport. But there was one game, footy, AFL, that just wasn't for girls. But in her 20s, Brie, along with her two sisters, started playing footy socially. And then she started working for the AFL. And then thanks to the work of women like Brie, along with all the players and fans, an incredible thing happened. In 2017, the Women's AFL League started up. Brianna became the first female CEO to be appointed in the AFL. She's the head of women's football at the Brisbane Lions. Hi, Brie. Hi. Who was the footy player in your family when you were growing up? Certainly my dad always played football his whole childhood and well into his adulthood. Took us around, you know, country Victoria to different clubs that he played in and then uh, eventually up to the ACT where he played uh, at the Ainsley Footy Club there. And that that really, that was part of his life. And and my uncles and on both sides of my family always played football as, as country Victorians do. All the girls played netball and, yeah, big sporting family. But was foot, I think that was the first time I ever saw my dad cry was when Collingwood won the 1990 Premiership. (laughs) And I remember him being on the phone to his family back in Australia. We were living in Greece at the time and he was in his old Collingwood, you know, knitted jumper and he's crying on the phone and we're thinking, God, I don't think I've ever seen dad cry. Um, So significant influence in our life for sure. When he would talk about his experiences playing footy as a young bloke, what was it that was so important to him? Why why was it something that mattered so much? Look, I mean, football's this very, you know, the friendships and the camaraderie that you find in football are so unique. You can hear, you know, guys telling stories of, you know, 40 years ago when I did this and, you know, certainly with my dad, the the newspaper clippings that he had, you know, in his scrapbook, you know, there was always the one that would come out after a few drinks and, you know, and the headline is, you know, Brock pilots Ainsley to first class premiership. And just last weekend we were at Ainsley Football Club uh, for a game and in the foyer is that headline. Um, So I took a photo of that when we were down there and and that on Father's Day and sent it to him. And, you know, he certainly put myself and my sisters on this journey of AFL and now we love it just as much as what he does. So footy had been a real passion for your dad, but what kind of different ways did he earn money in the early years? Yeah, look, my father's um, family, big family, six kids, they they struggled for money all the time. Uh, my grandfather worked at a dairy farm and also moonlighted in a, in a band called the, the Brock Brothers, which was a blues band that went around country Victoria. And so he never wanted, I guess, to be poor. And so every chance he had to to earn more money or on top of something else, you know, if it was a milk run, we bought a fish and chip shop, um, a beach kiosk in a place called Tarthra. We had a milk bar in a place called Burua. He bought apartments. He had always had these things going and, and often my poor mum would get stuck being the one running these businesses while dad went off to his full-time job. So there's, there's always this kind of entrepreneurial energy around, you know, what are we going to do next or what are we going to do? And even now in retirement, you know, he can't sit still and he's he's off doing things. So, What took your family overseas when you were just three, Brianna? Well, with this kind of footy journey and, and his last kind of transfer into the ACT, he came into the world of, you know, government and he was working in social security there. And in those days there was a social security office in the embassy in or in the high commission in England. And, you know, people were talking about this great lifestyle over there and he thought, well, why not? Let's go. So I, my older sister would have been five and I was three and off we went on this posting to England and that kind of set us on our way. And then every kind of three and a half years, we'd, we'd be posted somewhere. You might come back for six months, a year, whatever it was, next opportunity would come up. And, and off we'd go again. When you were there in London, you know, this, of course, is long before the internet or streaming. Mm. How did um, the embassy keep these little Australian families connected with life back home? Yeah, look, often you get, you know, there's the sort of care package and it probably wasn't as prevalent then as it, as it went on at, at other postings. But, you know, you get all your women's um, new idea, women's weekly, <laughs> you know, and it'd get passed around from house to house and, you know, packs of 
you know, Kingston's and Monte Carlo's and all that type of stuff, tins of Milo, even though I think they had oval teenies or whatever in England, you know, you weren't really going without. And, yeah, everything would just get passed around between family and family, videos and things like that. Moving so regularly with with that role, what did it mean for your kind of dynamic as a family with you and your sisters and your mum and dad? Yeah, 100%. I mean, you'd get to a country and you only knew three other people. So we were quite close as a family and would often, both my parents were pretty good tennis players, so we all played tennis as well. And in, you know, some countries there wasn't organised sport like there is for kids here. So, you know, we'd find a tennis club, join the tennis club, those types of things. It made some really, particularly through Greece, made some really great friendships through meeting other Greek-Australian families and those types of things. But, yeah, it meant we all spent a lot of time together. What would um, motivate your dad's choice about which postings to aim for or, or to ex- to accept? Yeah, I mean, I think if you think back to that kind of early 90s, interest rates here in Australia was something at like 17%. We had a house and he'd also bought three units, like a unit block up at the Sunshine Coast with a friend and, you know, they were in need of repair and, you know, we, we were pretty much nearly bankrupt in Greece. So he was doing things like taking on special postings to go to, you know, Nigeria and those are really awful, <laughs> very, very dangerous third world countries. Even though while we were in Greece, he'd go three months here, three months there just to try and earn um, more money so that <laughs> we weren't going to go bankrupt, which sounds ridiculous when you're working for the government overseas. But I suppose the more dangerous or less privileged of a place you went, the more money you got paid. <laughs> Given how important footy had been to him growing up and the fact that he had this bunch of brothers to play mm. with, Do you ever get the sense, did you ever get the sense that he wished that you or one of your sisters was a bloke, a boy, that he could kick the footy with? We we never, ever growing up once ever felt that, never from either parent. Our parents never told us once we couldn't do something or we weren't allowed to do anything or you shouldn't do that because you're a girl or anything like that. I think my mum in particular, I remember when they were sending my older sister off to college in America because she'd got a scholarship And mum just having her in this like vice-like grip, just saying, you can do anything, go and succeed. And I think that's partly because mum didn't get that opportunity. She was married very young, children very young, essentially a housewife, very competent, capable business running housewife. Not She doesn't think of herself like that, but just that she really wanted to see her daughters go forward and not um, live the life that she was living. One of the places your dad accepted a posting to was Pakistan. Mm. What do you remember about mm-hmm. arriving there, Brie? Uh, look, I just, we came in kind of the middle of the wet season and this, you know, just how thick and sticky the atmosphere is. Um, the monsoons, these, you know, tropical rains just rolling in. We're, we were living in Islamabad, which is at the foothills called the Magalas, which is the foothills of the Himalayas. And it's just these rolling green, you know, jungles and, just, you know, this storm would come and hit and then, you know, the sun would come out and everything was fresh and new and steaming hot and, you know, everyone then comes out and plays sport and the city comes alive because it's a bit cooler but just so different to being anywhere else we'd ever been before. What kind of sport were the Brock family playing in, in Pakistan? Well, not many places for girls to play sport but the compound or the the High Commission there had tennis courts, so we played a lot of tennis, but the school that we went to was an international school, but it was an American school, so it's the first time we'd experienced an American system. Our other postings had all been British system. So that that was totally, even the vocabulary that they used, I remember the first couple of weeks them saying, you need to go to the office and get a tardy note. And you're like, <laughs> what? What are you talking about? <laughs> Not knowing that was a late note. But we played everything that was on offer, soccer, volleyball, hockey, just anything that the school offered because the school sport, you know, here in Australia you might play the school next door. Well, there was no school next door. The next school was in another country. 
So if you're in the volleyball team, you got to go and do the volleyball tournament in Nepal or Sri Lanka or India. You were so, in the national team. <laughs> <laughs> we were like, well, we'll just go off and play those other international schools in another country. How bizarre. It must have been such an interestingly different culture to land in it at 13 mm. as a as an Anglo kid. What mm. did you observe about the role that girls and women had in this society compared mm. to what you experienced at home about that you can do anything attitude? Yeah. It, it was sort of the first time, I think, because I'm the middle child, I, I'm i always ripped off, right? I never get the new stuff. I always get the hand-me-downs and I have oh, to give my stuff off. The so, lament of the middle child you know, I'm never always ends, a, does it? <laughs> fairness and justice <laughs> is my mantra, right? So that I think that's what the main thing I started to notice was, oh, like, that's not very fair or why isn't I can do that. Why can't you do that? As a, as a friend, you know, some people weren't allowed to sleep over at Westerners' houses you know, people had to wear particular clothes, um, all, all those sorts of very different, particularly being in a Muslim country, of just the place of the female in that society. And, um, you know, obviously the further out of the cities you got, the worse it becomes. Um, and just these huge kind of gaps in, you know, people's education and or just access to things. Um, you know, even one of our friends there their maid's cousin had unfortunately in their village um, been raped by a man because she'd inappropriately shown her ankle or, you know, whatever the reason that they gave for. And, like, she had had to marry this guy. And I remember being at our friend's house and everyone was in the kitchen crying about this poor cousin who was going to have to marry this guy. And I'm I'm 13, 14 thinking, huh? I don't get that. How come he's not in jail? And so really starting to understand um, that when people talk about Australia as the lucky country, like, it really, really is. Which part of the world were you in when you finished high school? Well, I'd finished high school here in Australia. We'd um, been in Pakistan, came back for a little bit to Canberra, and then we'd moved to the north side of Brisbane in a place called Burpengary. It's the cultural centre of the world. Um, And I remember being, I'd flown in late and mum and dad drove us up to the house, waking up in the morning and going like, there's an emu farm across the road from our house. What have you brought me to? What is this place? Uh, so I went to a high school called Dakabin on, on the north side and had picked that school because it was a very good volleyball school. Um, and, yeah, it it was white Australia. There was two um, East Timorese kids at our school and that was it. I'm guessing also there weren't too many AFL fans at Birkengarry <laughs> no. in, back in, in the no, day. No, well, I, I don't think I was really that into it when we'd come back. You know, I'd never been to a live game at that stage. And then the Brisbane Lions became a fixture of Brisbane and moved to the Gabba. And we, I mean, my uncle and aunt were up from Victoria and took us to a game and that was my first game. So I probably was about 18 and was like, wow, that was fun. You know, let's do that again. And then that became a regular family kind of activity of going off to the footy and um, that was it. We became a a bit um, crazy about football. (laughs) Your first role in sport, though, wasn't in football. It was tennis coaching, which you started doing once you enrolled in uni. What was that experience like? Well, um... I really loved coaching kids. I didn't really know, I hadn't really done anything like that before. And, you know, I was in high school when I just started working on a Saturday morning, helping the local tennis coach out, you know, doing little games with the kids. And then when I finished high school, uh, another guy that I knew said, look, I'm starting up this business and I need someone to help me out. Can you just come and do some hours? Yep, which was fine. And then went to my first year of uni thinking, you know, I'm going to be a diplomat. So doing ridiculously impractical subjects that give you no life skills at all and just couldn't quite work out how I was going to support myself and live and do this job and go to uni and in the end decided I actually loved the coaching way more than I was interested in what I was doing at uni. So deferred uni and took on this kind of coaching career for about 10 years. What about the difference between the way male coaches and female coaches were treated? Yeah, it. It was, I had an interesting experience there where it had been just myself and this other guy for five, six years um, and him and his family, beautiful family, and they were, you know, young couple starting their business, living their dreams, working extremely hard and crazy hours and then as the business was growing had to take on different people and offer different services. Um, 
so yeah, we we had a couple of guys in there who probably um, obviously better players than myself, but probably not better coaches or administrators or in the running of the business part. So I was kind of coaching just over half the business and those two were not and not getting paid the same. So again, that same sort of, oh, hang on a second, I'm not sure that's fair. And, you know, looking back all these years later, it probably could have been a different outcome, but I sort of was like, nah, well, that's it. I'm out. I quit. And look, again, dad had a bit of a side hustle going on and was thinking about buying his own tennis centre. So that was sort of all about to eventuate. Um, but yeah, it really stuck with me that, again, that fairness piece. AFL then uh, made a, a kind of appearance in your life when you got invited to something. What was that? As in going to train? Yeah. How did that come about? Well, the first time um, a friend of ours said, hey, I've been going down to this footy club and uh, there's all these girls training. You know, why don't you three girls go down and and have a look? And this is before internet or anything like that. So it took us like two weeks to find someone's phone number to say, hey, what times do you train? So the three of us kind of all marched off and and went to this training session unbeknownst to us they had a game that weekend and didn't have enough players <laughs> so i can imagine them all sitting there watching these three girls walk in going okay you know make sure this is like awesome we need these three girls to play on the weekend but we just had the best training time we loved it and it's probably the first time the three of our sisters all were able to do a sport together. Had you ever actually played a game of AFL before? No, no. <laughs> We'd really never even really kicked a ball around, to be honest, because like maybe on the gather after a game or something like that, but never wouldn't be like we'd go, you know, let's all go and have a kick and pretend to play. Not at all. Did you know the rules? Um, I think you can watch the game on TV and think you know the rules, but when you have to play, <laughs> you don't really know the rules when you start playing. I'm sure I still get some of the rules wrong. But, um, yeah, so we had this training session. And so my younger sister is eight years younger than myself and ten years younger than my sister. So she was only, like, 20, uh, 17. She was still at high school. So it was the first time. And my other sister had come back from America. She had been away for eight years. So we were just, I think, this is cool. We're all together. But we went and did this training session. Then we all got back in the car and we just, like, sat there for a second, total silence. Like, man, that was so good. Loved it. And that was it. We were sort of hooked by what then. What did you love? You'd played so many sports. Why did you love this? I, I, I think the group who were there obviously made us feel so welcome. And it's kind of a footy thing, I guess. You're like, you've got to know people's names quickly. To be like, oh, I mean, we didn't know any of this. But, you know, oh, wow, they all knew our names so quickly and um, helped us. And were, you know, there's this, particularly back then, you know, it was so hard to get players to come and play that you really, the teams really made a big effort to make it a great experience and very welcoming and this really kind of um, great time. So, yeah, so then we're like, oh, yeah, sure, we'll play on the weekend. We don't even know the rules. <laughs> and, you know, the first one second of the, the game, the umpire balled the ball up and the team we were playing, that Ruckman eventually played in the AFLW. Her name's Astor O'Connor, very tough, hard ruck woman. She knew the rules. She knew the rules. <laughs> and she just smashed into our ruck, like put her knee right in her ribs and it ended up being a broken rib. We didn't know that at the time. Then the second one, they went in together and smashed heads and our ruck's face was like a cricket ball. And our mum is on the sideline going, get off the field, you girls, <laughs> get off, that's it. And I'm thinking, I'm looking, I'm going, what? What is she talking about? And turn around and the ball came straight to me. I didn't have to move, just went, landed straight in my arms and I turned around and kicked a goal and I was like, <laughs> that's it. I love this game. Um, and that was us all these years later. My older sister's still playing. She's 44 and still giving it a go. My younger sister's about to come back and start playing again as well. So Fantastic. How yeah. could tennis compete with that? No, what were, not at all. What were the facilities like in the division you were playing in? Uh, um well, at the particular at the club we started at, in fairness, the facilities were same for everybody, men and women, but probably really not appropriate for not just a group of women, but a group of young women as well. We had some teenagers playing in the team at the time. You know, it's one toilet, never had a light globe in it, was always blown. Um, the back door was a roller door, so you know, once the door was open, you know, everybody can see in. So we used to have to put a tarp on there. 
you know, and it's a, it's on sort of a floodplain where we used to play. So there's always cane toads in there. It was always dirty and, you know, just not a great um, environment <laughs> or and a very clean environment, I should say. When you would, com- like, would you complain about this to the league? Was there anyone that would listen to the reality of what that those conditions were like? Well, not really because, like I said, the men's team had the same conditions, but and and it's not right to say that men just get on with like get on with it and accept it. I'm sure they had all like a nice room as well. That's just not something that you put time and energy into, I suppose. So that was definitely one of the things that was hampering the growth of girls' footy, facility wise. Um, because even at halftime, you're trying to get 18 to 20 girls to go to the bathroom with one toilet. You know, it's just a logistical issue. So, you know, girls have to run up into the bar in the clubhouse and just things like that. Just you think, oh, this doesn't really work. Footy started as this bit of fun for you and your sisters. Mm. How did you start working at the AFL? I had a lot of happy accidents, I suppose. We'd moved to another club and as part of being at that club, you know, we weren't really generating much income. People don't come to watch our games, so people weren't in the bar and eating food over the canteen. So we'd sort of made a deal with the club to say, all right, well, we'll run all the Auskick clinics so that no one else at the club has to do it, but we'll run it all and that's sort of, you know, the way we'll pay our way. And so after, oh, I don't know, anyway, I got recognised as an award, like Auskick Volunteer of the Year or something like that. And then because we were playing in the women's part as well um, and the league, had a specific female employee, she was starting to see that, you know, not that we were making noises, but we're saying like, well, can we do the draw like this? And can we change the, this would be better for teams with low numbers. And she started taking me along to some meetings and um, took me to Victoria once to a, a women's football meeting. So I was starting to see that other side of how the AFL worked. And then um, eventually uh, we ended up moving to the Northern Territory and then that's when I started working for the AFL full-time. And what was that like? I mean, how seriously was AFL taken in the communities you were working with in the Northern Territory? Oh, it's religion up there. <laughs> you can't get that. I'm, I mean, when I first got appointed, again, unbeknownst to me, I was the first female regional manager. Um, I was in charge of Darwin, so the the, you know, hub of where all the football happens. And they'd sort of said, well, we really want you to kind of kickstart our women's football and just kind of see what you can do. But all of the kind of women's teams and people who were heavily involved in women's footy were like, oh, what's this girl know from Queensland? She doesn't know NT footy and da 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 And then I'd meet them and be like, well, what about this and how's all this happening and have had the same challenges in Queensland that they were having and then you know, I was able to quickly win them over and we were able to make a pretty decent change in women's footy there quickly. Well, back then when, you know, girls were playing and women were playing socially and loving the game, but what was happening when those girls who were into it at, you know, 8, 9, 10, when they were hitting 12 Mm. or 13? Yeah, just no opportunities for them. So legally you can't play mixed football um, from the age of 14 onwards. So you could continue playing with boys if you had the guts to. Um, you know, you've got to be, boys grow exponentially from sort of 12 onwards and females don't grow in the same kind of rates that boys do. So you could see some girls just being towered by these huge kids and it's full contact. So, you know, on one hand we're telling boys, please treat women with respect and don't hit them. And then we'll go, oh, but on kill the free field, just back on, you know, give it to us. So... That was starting to become a bit of an issue and so we said, well, we've just got to be able to provide a, a pathway for those girls in between and that's when we started under-15s leagues, under-17s leagues that could then lead into the senior pathway. Back then, Bree, was the thinking or was your thinking, look, it's only a matter of time before we get our own league? No way. That was – I never, ever thought that. Even in all the meetings that we would have – um, there was a particular lady, Jan Cooper, who was the kind of head of all the women's football people. You know, sometimes she would say that as like this pie in the sky thing. And I reckon we'd all like look at each other and go, as if that's ever going to happen. We are so far away from that happening. And, you know, Jan Cooper's a huge, huge reason as to why the AFLW is where it is. She just never gave up on that and was 
jog and in her approach on that. Why did it seem so impossible to you? Well, I suppose because, you know, when you know what's behind the curtain, you know how much money's being invested in it, you know how serious people are or aren't taking it. The interest was pretty low from the majority of the AFL as as a piece of the business. And, you know, we were flat out trying to get investment into just grassroots footy. How on earth were we ever going to produce enough talent to have a professional league? So how did that change? Well, we had a change in CEO and Gillan McLaughlin, one of the very first emails that he sent out as his, you know, hi, I'm Gil, was female footy is on the agenda and we're going to make a big difference. And in, particularly in Queensland, we had a CEO at the time called Michael Conlon, who was a very competitive guy. And when I was working for him, I said, well, do you want to be number one for girls footy or not? And of course, he wants to be number one. So convinced him to invest more money into it and give me a bigger budget. Like the budget that I inherited at the time was $25,000 to run every program across Queensland. So that would have been about $2,500 per like country region, which is not a lot. So um, he was a huge part of where we've gotten to in terms of investment. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So... Brianna, there's this decision on high in the AFL that there's going to be the start of a women's league. The very first AFLW game in 2017 mm. uh, was was between Collingwood and Carlton. What kind of rivalry exists between those two clubs for, for people who don't know AFL? Oh, goodness. I mean, it's intense. They completely hate each other. And, you know, it, it was interesting, right, because this... Rivalry exists definitely in the men's, 100% between those two clubs. So it was a little bit manufactured in women's. Like these two teams had never, ever played together, never played each other. So there wasn't any kind of hate or fight in the game. Certainly in the crowd, I'm sure they were giving it to each other. But the, that first game, we we weren't playing until the Sunday. So we were actually training and we kind of finished training early so the girls could come in and, and watch it on the, the TV and, you know, you could hear a pin drop because it, it was sort of like removed from us. Like, are we we going to play in this kind of thing on Sunday? And for people like me who'd kind of been fighting the fight for a long time and so many people in that crowd who'd never had the opportunity to play football, who'd always been, you know, put into the spectator category, there were women bawling their heads off, you know, when that game um, started and, and the whole build up to it and it, it's just such a brilliant day and such a great piece of our history. So it ended up being this enormous success mm. but I guess no one really knew in the lead up how it was going to go, what kind of interest there'd be. I mean no. originally where was that game scheduled to be played? Well it was originally I think at um, Victoria Park I think and then people were starting to get an inkling oh it might be a bit more than just that. We'll put it on an icon. N- never in a million years thinking it and would be... And this is Carlton's home ground, yeah, icon. Yeah, that would be, um, you know, 25,000 people in a lockout. You had to shut the gates. But in those days, it was free entry. So, you know, from a logistics point of view, from the part of the job that I do, how many drinks are you, are you buying? How many hot dogs? Like, how many toilets do you need for an imagined crowd? So I can only guess what that you know, the back of house looked like for that game. I'm sure there was not enough food, not enough water, not enough toilets. No one expected any of that. But that that was the life of us for probably three or four seasons until they made it ticketed. 
Do you think there were any of those true believers who were always thinking there was an appetite for a women's game who thought, oh, yeah, this is what we thought would happen? Or was, was it a surprise to everyone, the amount of support and, and interest that there was for that? I think not the amount of support but the intense support and that this emotion that came out of people just so many people, you know, I, I meet, go, oh God, you know, I wish I had had this. Even me, you know, I, I wish this was a thing when I had started playing. Um, probably would never have been good enough to do it, but you would have liked the chance, you know. So I think people who've been in, you know, told, no, sorry, you have to stop playing now. Erin Phillips is a great example of that. She's a champion of our game. We lost her all those years to basketball because she had no opportunity as a 13-year-old. So, you know, there's this great kind of not reckoning, but, you know, all those people who missed out are just so proud of what the league has become. Your sisters made it to the game there yes. on that first game. What yeah. did they tell you about it? Yeah, my my sisters were just, you know, same thing. They've been on this journey with me as well and they certainly didn't think it would be that busy and have my niece who was only about five at the time. So they just thought, oh, we'll go early, you know, and thank goodness that they did because um, they would have been locked out. But they just... The, the sound, the atmosphere and the way everybody was, you know, almost all hugging each other in the crowd and there was just no animosity or any of the kinds of tribalism that you feel sometimes in a men's game that this was just the most beautiful, wonderful thing that had happened. So you had moved from working with the AFL to being appointed the first female CEO in the AFL in this role with Brisbane Lions women's team. What was it like telling your dad that you had a uh, job? I'll try not to cry. It, he was the first one that I called and, you know, I remember just being so excited to, to tell him and, you know, he just burst into tears and I, I was in tears and, you know, just when your parents are so proud of you. Um, oh, see, get a bit. <laughs> it, yeah, it was lovely. So... The emotion is there. You're getting a lot of love and support from mm -hmm. your family, but you had to make a team out of nothing. <laughs> yeah. How did you yeah. start? Where did you find players? Yeah. Look, we were pretty lucky. Queensland, the work that the head coach Craig and I had been doing in the previous sort of three to four years, Queensland was right up there with Victoria and Western Australia in terms of women's football, which is not the case in men's football. Men's standard is a lot lower. So we knew um, at a state level we're quite competitive and we'd had a few of these sort of lead-in games where we'd played as the fake Brisbane Lions a couple of years earlier against Melbourne and Western Bulldogs in those sort of exhibition games. And we'd sort of started to frame, okay, who might be at the level, but then you've actually got to go and do it. So we, we ran some um, big like talent ID days and trial days and things like that. But ultimately it was sort of our state team plus some ring-ins that we got from interstate and some few other diamonds in the rough that we found. And is the game that the women AFL play exactly the same as the men's? It's slightly different. We have two less people on the field. And that was, we had never played those sorts of numbers before, but there was a consensus that they wanted to make the game more open and less stoppages, which, which is kind of generally what happens in a lot of women's games. And to open the scoring and make it more free-flowing will take two people off the field. It probably hasn't really happened in terms of the scoring, but um, the other component to that is our games aren't as long. So we're playing in the summer, in the middle of summer, January, February, March, and, you know, from a heat stroke point of view, you can't expose people to longer than 18 minutes of exertion in heat. So the quarters are only 15 minutes long. You know, men's is like, is 20 plus time on which can end up being half an hour at times. So we play half the time of men's. Is it as rough? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what, one of the things that surprises most people who come and watch a women's game for the first time is just that it's as combative as a men's game. They're certainly taking no prisoners. <laughs> so back in 2017, the, the very first Lions game was against the Melbourne Demons. Mm. What did the press think were the chances of a Queensland team beating the Victorians at their own game? No, well, certainly low. We definitely, I mean, who knew, right? No one knew what the teams were going to be like, but certainly there was a view formed that Melbourne and the Western Bulldogs would be right up there because 
they'd had these teams in these exhibition games, even though they didn't really end up having the same players, and that the interstate clubs wouldn't be much chop. And we sort of took that on board as a bit of a chip on our shoulder, and that chip has certainly stayed on our shoulder. And still we often, you know, refer to the fact that people don't rate that the Brisbane Lions are a good team. I think that perception has probably changed this year. <laughs> uh, but that's certainly that game, uh, you know, I don't think they even really knew our names. The commentators often through the game you can hear them call us the Brisbane players, that, but they knew more of the Melbourne players. And it was definitely not expected that we would win. The weather was horrendous. It was howling wind, pouring rain, lightning strike. Perfect you know, day for football. Perfect day. <laughs> it's a Melbourne day for football. Um, but we just found a way and and won that game and... You know, it was tremendous. And how did the Lions do that first season? Well, we were undefeated, got all the way to a grand final and uh, sadly lost the grand final by one straight kick. Well, you did win the premiership last year, which must have made up for some of that. Tell me about that day. Oh, gosh. Well, it was our third grand final that we'd we'd gotten to and I suppose you get you've had a few practices <clears throat> and we just... The team at the time, you know, COVID had just kind of happened. We'd had a really good pre-season altogether. We were in a fortunate position where Queensland wasn't as affected as Victoria. And the girls were just in this frame of mind of just work harder, work harder, be stronger, um, do anything you can do. Like they were really right in this zone um, that we'd never really seen before. And I think it was part personnel. The, the group had been together for a season before. We'd had some stability and they were really ready to show what they could do. And it was a very easy year, if that makes sense. There was no dramas in the team. There was kind of no big issues that hampered us. Everybody was on the train and we're heading in that direction. And, and on that morning, it almost felt like Christmas morning. You know, breakfast, everybody was just it, this excitement and, you know, it's like being on being on summer camp, you know, it's the best holiday you've ever been on and great weather. Everything just happened. Even when something went wrong, it, it went for the better, you know, like just really funny little things that, that happened just ended up, oh, like that's good, you know, well, that's better, so who cares? And there was just this never, never doubted in the day, that we wouldn't win, just felt, oh, this is it. Everybody's in the zone. We're on here and, and the game unfolded. And it's just an awesome game. And how were the celebrations after? Yeah, well, it was love. <laughs> well, COVID again kind of ruined it. <laughs> only only for the fact that, you know, you couldn't have all the families in there and, um, you know, we couldn't interact with the crowd after the game, all, all those sorts of things. But no one, no one really cared because we were all just so happy. And then, you know, in the, in the role that I, we were purposely on an 8am flight out to try to oh, keep a lid cruel. on things. Very cruel. <laughs> but uh, as I said, we've had a few practices in grand finals before. So there's little things you do to, to make sure people have a good time, but anyone, make sure everyone's safe. Anyone miss the flight? <laughs> no one missed the flight. I'm not sure everybody slept, but that's okay. They all looked presentable and in uniform and um, they, they, did, they held themselves really well, actually. Some of those times, you know, things, young girls, and particularly our team, they don't drink at all during the season. Um, so all of a sudden when there's all this alcohol around, you know, people can get ugly quickly. Um, so again, little tricks to that. You always put on the alcohol that they don't like. So they <laughs> drink less of it. Claret or something. <laughs> Port. Uh, beer, beer and wine. They, this group <laughs> don't like beer and wine. So um, yeah, just to make sure it stayed measured, but you know, they would, it just didn't matter, you know, just didn't even need any of that sort of stuff. Everybody was on cloud nine and it was such a, just a nice time to all be together. How does the league look now five years in? What's the state of play for AFLW now? Well, this current season, so this is very strange in any sport where we're playing two seasons in one calendar year and that's part of a, a shift to bring our season into August and try and capitalise off the engaged football audience. So that's quite different. And so with that, we've introduced another four teams. So expansion has been rapid for us, but we are now an 18-team competition. We employ 520 
female athletes, contracted players, you know, with a minimum pay of, of about $40,000. So we are, you know, an incredible jewel in the crown of women's sport in what we're able to do. Are the women playing AFL able to commit all their time to the sport or a lot of those athletes also having to run other jobs as they have in the past? Yeah, look, many are still working other jobs, depending where they are in their working life. You know, if they've just if they're at uni, they're able to just concentrate on uni and footy. The, the pay is enough to to not have to have a third job on top of that. That that's not been always the case. In between these these two seasons in one year, the girls got a ninety four percent pay rise, which 94%. is incredible. Yeah, ninety four percent. So you know, some of our younger players who are eighteen, nineteen, living at home, going to uni, they're like. This is easy street. We've got two girls who are in high school. Um, so they certainly don't need to work at Zambreros anymore. But what it has done is we've seen the stress levels really come right down. And for those people who want to concentrate just on footy, they're earning enough money to do that and dedicate themselves to that. So um, we're seeing a lot less people emotionally fatigued, physically fatigued by juggling all those balls. I'm guessing there's still no comparison with what male AFL players are, are paid? Um, it's prorated, but no, look, male, the lowest paid male players on about $150,000. So that's probably where more our top players are at. Our season is 10 rounds and four finals. And, you know, the boys are 23 rounds plus finals. So yeah, you could sort of say it's doubled, which which is about right. But it doesn't mean you have to train any less or <laughs> all those sorts of things. You've still got to have the same amount of dedication to it. The AFL has just signed this mammoth mm. broadcast deal, mm. $4.5 billion, the biggest broadcast deal ever mm. in Australian history. Will some of that money make its way to the AFLW? Look, that's where our, our sport's so fortunate. Our, our you know, AFL house and the AFL commission are really in tune with the fact that the top end of town, you know, kind of pays for the bottom end of town. Grassroots footy is still one of the cheapest football like sporting options for kids. So we don't, you know, fund our elite teams from the bottom up. So we think certainly for what AFLW has done in terms of participation rates and those sorts of things, that there will be some form of hefty level of investment. Not that they're not already investing heavily. You know, it's somewhere in the realms of 20 to $30 million that the AFL invest in this. So it's significant. You know, it's about a million dollars around to play per week. So, you know, but... What we will be able to do with this competition, the more professional it becomes and the more that the girls can put into their craft and we can have staff that support them, it's just going to go through through the atmosphere, you know, like it'll be, it'll come on so quickly. You've probably been in your fair share of locker rooms over the years, Bree. How do women's and men's locker rooms compare? I'm guessing both are, are pretty smelly, but are there <laughs> different uh, atmospheres in your experience? Well, I haven't been in too many men's locker rooms. This so. is your chance to really <laughs> share the, the private tales. <laughs> I mean, as you well, girls love to have a chat and love to have a talk and love to sing and dance and, you know, music, uh, you know, our coach is really into his music, so music is always on, whether that's in the training room, in the change rooms, all those sorts of things. And they, you know, sometimes I'm like, God, oh, turn it down. It is so loud. I can't even hear myself think. But... They're loving it. They're in there having a sing in the ice baths and our our group's got this beautiful chemistry anyway anyway where they're quite high energy. So um, add music to that and then that's it. You've got a disco on your hands. What benefits do you see team sport bringing? Like what is it to be a part of a tribe, I mm. guess, is what mm. a, a team offers you. If there's stuff going on in your private life or if there are challenges outside of yeah. of footy, what, what does that mean for your relationship with your teammates? Well, often, you know, we always say that footy is your happy place, you know. So when there are things that are, you know, troubling you or you're struggling with, you can come into this environment where everybody is pretty upbeat and almost escape from your problems for that two hours of training or two hours of the game. We often, you know, you can see that weight lift off people as they walk in like, oh, right, here's all, here's all my best mates that I get to do this super fun, challenging thing with. And you can sort of see it all melt away from them, which is great. But it, it's for women, you know, our game is so particular 
in terms of trust. So, you know, you have the ball, someone's trying to tackle you, I can protect you. And so that level of trust between you and I as women is often very difficult to build outside of that environment. And friendships can, you know, sometimes not be as deep as they are in a football sense because we I never get to really show you that, you know, every five minutes on a field how much I trust you or how much you trust me. And this beautiful bond of protecting each other and helping each other and making each other great. And I think that that's what's the thing that attracts so many of these, you know, young girls to our game is they don't get that in many other sports, that protection of each other. And also that, you know, you can be demanding and you've got to be loud and scream for the ball and get on the ground and get dirty and muddy and and all of that's okay. And that's what you're supposed to do as a girl in this team. I don't know in what other environment in life women get to do that. Not everyone has embraced the new league, Brie. I was remembering when that amazing photo of Carlton player Mm -hmm. Taylor Harris kicking Mm -hmm. goal was posted on social media. Explain explain that and the fallout from that and what you make of that lingering misogyny about women playing footy. It's 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 probably not even just playing footy. I mean, I think that attitude exists towards women in any field. You look at any successful woman is probably getting a lot of that. I think the thing with the the Taylor photo was just how horrific it was. Some of the comments to her were so violent and so um just really distressing in a way and the, and she handled herself so well for a very young girl and really made a point of you know not letting people get away with that and and that was the start of I think a really big shift in the way people see social media and the way that channels who let people speak like that just let it sit there like delete that don't give people that air so it's two parts. Yes, there's one part of not thinking that AFLW is any good, but I think there's still this greater, you know, movement around attitudes towards women that needs to be more addressed. I remember her saying about that photo, which is her, you know, leaping off mm. the ground doing this amazing mm-hmm. high kick, saying this is a photo of me at work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's sort of the end of the story. Yeah. Really. And, you know, again, a lot of those, you know, that's probably she burst onto the scene a little bit, but anybody in women's football knows who Taylor Harris is and knows the way she kicks. And there's been a billion photos of her like that. It was just that that particular photo ended up being, you know, on Channel 7's Twitter. And so it opened up this audience that had possibly never even seen who she was or what she has done and that, you know, she's got this magnificent kicking technique that had been on a billion other posters and other things that, you know, she'd been used as a um, bit of a promoter of the game. And, yeah, it's her job. And, yeah, it was she, – she did a fantastic job with the way she handled it. AFL's often been a lightning rod for race and discussions about race in this mm. country too. Tell me about the new Guernsey or jumper that, um, that the Lions player Courtney Hodder has designed. It's our third uh, Indigenous round. So in previous years, we we haven't had any themed rounds and we've had an Indigenous player in our team each year design design one. So Courtney's the third. And this jumper, we were, um, you know, we're moving to a new facility and just started talking to her about doing the design that, mind you, she had to do in three days because the season got moved. So everything around uniforms all had to get And she was in isolation or she COVID was, isolation. Yes, yeah, they were all holed up in a hotel because we uh, had to take them out of their homes because their families had had COVID and, and stick them in these hotels. And so she, she sat up in her room for three days designing this. And it's just this great story of, of us and particularly the three girls putting their roots down as, as the boab trees on the front at our new home in Springfield, which is, we haven't had a home yet. So we're really looking forward to getting out there and getting on this journey as as one united club finally. You've got a son, Bree, and your partner also works in in AFL. Does he have any choices, your son, about what sport (laughs) he'd be playing? Oh, he's definitely not allowed to play cricket. (laughs) Just (laughs) takes up too much time. But uh, he started playing basketball this year as well. So we've been juggling basketball and AFL, but yeah, certainly um, 
he's very heavily influenced to play AFL. He can't escape it really. So, you know, sort of if you can't beat them, join them. And you What's know, his he experience been in, in footy as as a young boy? He will never know how lucky he's been. You know, he gets to hang out in the change rooms with, you know, all the men's players, all the women's players. You know, he sees them all the time. They'll have a kick with him. They talk to him. You know, he, he won't realise until he's a lot older the experience of life that he's had. You know, all the games he gets to go to, he gets to sit in VIP, which he thinks is just the best. And, you know, he'll say now, so we're going VIP? Okay. <laughs> And, you know, if you have to slum it, you're like, oh, I don't want to go then, you know, if you have to go somewhere else. <laughs> Does he see much distinction between the female players or the female games and the male players and the male games? How does he hold that, this new generation? Yeah, no, I, I don't think so. You know, he watches both games as intently. He criticises everything just as intently. He knows all the stats. He knows who's who. You know, I honestly, probably by the time he's about 15, he could be my list manager. You know, who should be doing what, what should we should get next. Um, and he's as equally into it with the boys. But I, I think he's a lot closer in ways to the girls' program because, you know, sometimes he has to come to work with me and he has to sit in meetings with me and sit in my office and those types of things. And, you know, he's he's all over it. So I think he just doesn't know any different because he was three when our league started. And he's growing up with this really great, attitude about what women can do. He plays in a team that's got five other girls in it and he doesn't ever say, oh, you know, the girls, because they're just as good as the boys. And so he sees them as great teammates and people he wants to play with. And, you know, if that's what influence AFLW can have, then that's the really big change that we're making. It has been fantastic to meet you, Brianna, and and hear the story of AFLW. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. I'm Naz. Hi, Naz. Uh, Last month I spent $65 on subscription services and I only watched one show. My own. And uh, this month I spent $85 on beauty products for my hair and skin and I didn't even get to show it off to anyone because I spent the entire month on the couch watching my own show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, fair enough. Been there. Hi, I'm Nazim Hussain, and in 2021, I presented a series of The Pineapple Project all about being frugal, and I learned a lot. But I've realised since that there are huge areas of my life that we didn't get to cover, and it's showing up on my bank statement, big time. I need help, quick. And by the sounds of it, you do too. So this season of The Pineapple Project, we're getting even more frugal. So let's tweak our streaming subscriptions. Budget out our beauty regimens. Date without debt. And heaps more. New Pineapple Project. Find us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you pod.